Turn to our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Man, I'm thankful for the resurrection. I'll tell you, when they nailed him to that cross, they all thought it was done. <laughs> the Romans thought that that was the end. Pilate had washed his hands of it, you know. And the Jews thought that was the end. The high priest had said it was expedient for one man to die for the nation. They thought they was done with him, amen. And uh, the devil thought that was the end. Amen. He thought he had finally got what he wanted, thought it was over. The disciples thought it was the end. The Bible says Peter followed behind that night in the garden that he might see the end. Amen. He, they thought it was the end. They thought it was all over. But oh, how wrong they were on that third morning when he got up from the grave victorious over death. Man, I'm glad we have a living Savior today. And uh, every, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday around here. Amen. I don't mean you get chocolate every Sunday, amen. That just means that we celebrate the resurrection. But I am thrilled that you're here today, and I'm honored that you're here today. I know you didn't come to honor me, but it does bless me. I know you came to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And I know your presence here blesses Him as well. First Corinthians chapter number 15. I'd like to begin reading down in verse 40, 54, almost the end of the chapter. Verse number 54. We'll read just a few short verses and then go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, So when this corruptible, and he's talking about our bodies, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I love you this morning. I thank you for getting up on that third day, victorious over death, walking out of that tomb and into my heart, saving and changing the life of a poor dead sinner like me. Lord, we've gathered here today and I'm so thankful for each and every person here. But, Lord, in a room this size, in a crowd this size, it wouldn't be a surprise for there to be someone here that they don't know you as their personal Savior. They've probably been to church many times, played religion, done all those things that they think good people ought to do, but they're not saved. They've never acknowledged themselves a sinner and repented of that sin and asked your forgiveness and asked you to save them and change their life. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody that's here in that condition, Lord, that you'd show them that you got up for them. Lord, they may have got up this morning for a number of reasons and come to church, but on that third day, you got up for them. Lord, you were victorious over death for them. You went to the cross of Calvary for them. You resurrected for them, Lord, and that they can know you as their personal Savior in the power of your resurrection. Lord, we love you and thank you for what you did for us. But Lord, I thank you for what you do for us every day. Lord, even on this very day, we thank you for what you will do and we give you glory for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that there are several chapters in the Word of God that sort of define certain things about the Christian life. I think about Hebrews chapter number 11, how it defines for us the idea of faith. I think of Romans chapter number 8, how it defines for us the Spirit-filled life and what that means for us as believers. 
And when we come to our text chapter this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, we find, I believe, the definitive chapter on the topic of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You And I encourage you to do so. You can read through the entirety of this chapter. And never does the Apostle Paul depart from this central theme of the truth and reality of the resurrection. I'm here to tell you today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reality. It is not a fantasy. It is not a fable. It is not a fairy tale. It is a fact and it is a reality. And that is apparent when we study early New Testament Christianity. They didn't believe that this was merely a story of uh, fantasy meant to comfort us in moments of grief. But they declared boldly that it was a story and statement of fact that was meant to be an underpinning for the Christian faith. And when we read this chapter of Scripture, it is inundated with the truth of the resurrection. For instance, look at the first four verses. In it we have the history of the resurrection. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. He says, For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Let me pause there and say that is a fundamental component of the story of the gospel. Not just that Christ lived, but that He died. Not just that He died, but that He died for our sins. Not just that He died for our sins, but that He did so according to the Scripture. The Bible says that He was buried. I remember a story that I heard years ago about somebody that had come uh, to the Moody Chapel and uh, was preaching a series of revival meetings. And uh, while they were there, a fellow got up and he was preaching on the cross. And he preached all the way up to the point where they put Christ in the tomb. And he stopped there and he said, Now come back tomorrow night and I'll preach the rest of the message to you. Afterwards, Mr. Moody went to him and he said, You'll not be preaching tomorrow night. The fellow looked shocked. He said, Well, I thought I was scheduled to be here all week. And he said, Well, sir, you were... uh, but I would never have anybody come back and preach that would leave Jesus in the tomb. He said, don't stop there because He ain't in the tomb. And bless the Lord, the gospel does not stop at that phrase in verse 4 that He was buried. For it goes on to say that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the history of the resurrection. And let me say, the resurrection is a historical fact. We spent a little time in Sunday school talking about the historicity of the resurrection. Any rational person believes in the resurrection. Any logical person believes in the resurrection. Any factual person believes in the resurrection. You say, well, preacher, I don't believe in the resurrection. Then you are neither logical, nor rational, nor factual in your world view. When we think about all the proofs of the resurrection, we could point to the empty tomb. You know, they preached the empty tomb in Jerusalem in the days following our Lord's ascension to heaven. Don't you think if there's bones in them tombs uh, that they wouldn't have preached the resurrection? Don't you think the Jews could have very easily went and said, roll back the stone and we'll gaze upon His corpse? But they couldn't do that. If they rolled back the stone again, they'd just find an empty tomb. The empty tomb is proof of the resurrection. 
resurrection. Not only that, the existence of the church is proof of the resurrection. Hey, listen, how would it be possible for the church to still be going and growing and working and laboring and standing some 2,000 years later? Not through the edge of the sword, not through cultural pressures. It is anti-cultural to be Christian, but rather through an inborn life from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then I would say this, you cannot, if you're a factual person, dismiss the eyewitness testimony of Scripture. Here we're told, uh, it goes on a little further to tell us uh, that he was seen of above of 500 brethren at once. And Paul says, many of whom are still alive unto this day. Do you think Paul would have written that uh, if those men hadn't seen uh, the risen Savior? Not only that, we tell, we are told from history that ten of the disciples went on to die a martyr's death. Hey, listen, I'm a Baptist pastor. You can't get ten people to agree on anything. Amen? There's nobody but God could get them to agree in their story of the risen Savior. How are you going to get them to maintain if it was a lie? How would they maintain that lie? For decades under severe persecution, threat of death, and then actual death. They couldn't have done it. Ten men couldn't have told the same story and gotten it all right. But there is another explanation, don't you know? And that's that he did exactly what he said he would do, did exactly what the Bible says that he did, that on the third day he got up victorious over death. Only a fool would reject the historicity of the resurrection. So here we have the history of the resurrection. Look with me in verse 12. The Bible describes for us the necessity of the resurrection. You say, well, preacher, I like some of the Christian virtues and ideals, but I just don't know that I can go in for this whole Jesus raising from the dead thing. And I've got news for you. Your Christianity won't work without the resurrection. No rational form of Christianity can exist divorced from the truth of the resurrection. Paul says now in verse number 12, now if Christ be preached, that He rose from the dead. How say some among you that there be no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? What would that mean for us? It says, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain. It'd mean the apostles are liars. It'd mean Paul is a liar. It'd mean Jesus Himself was a liar. And that would mean, verse 14, your faith is also vain. Verse 15 would say this, yea, and we also are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raise not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Hey, nobody ever ought to rejoice at a funeral if Christ didn't raise from the dead. Nobody ever ought to be comforted at the graveside of a loved one if Christ did not raise from the dead. And not only that, we as Christians, you're going to have to explain why we're so happy all the time. Because if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Your Christianity won't function without the physical, bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about whether that's true or not because in our text here, we see the certainty of the resurrection. I like verse 20. It says this, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Not now, I hope He is. Not now maybe He is. Not now possibly He is. Not even now probably He is. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. And that came true, didn't it? 
Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. So that's going to come true. Amen. And then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I was reading just this past week in Matthew's account of the uh, night of the arrest of the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says that Peter, when he followed behind, and I guess I knew this, but it hit me like a sledgehammer when I read it. It says that as he followed behind, he went that he might see the end. Peter thought it was the end. Amen. I'm glad it wasn't the end. The end is talked about right here. The end doesn't wind up with him in a tomb. The end winds up with him on the throne. Amen. The end does not wind up with him embalmed. The end winds up with him enthroned and sitting with a crown upon his head. I'm glad, man. There's certainty in the resurrection. Verse 50 describes for us the reality of the resurrection for you and I as believers It says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And he's talking about dying. He uses that word to describe believers dying in the Lord. He uses it again in 2 Thessalonians. He says, but we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Got news for you. You say, preacher, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, but, uh, you know, I've just got some confusion. I'm not sure about some things. I'll tell you this. If you're really saved by the grace of God, uh, the resurrection is going to straighten out any questions you've got about matters. Uh, one day it's going to become a reality to us. And it is real right now. But one of these days, we're going to step through that veil. One of these days, you say, well, preacher, I hope I live till he comes. You're still not going to avoid the resurrection. Because we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're all going to experience that resurrection. I see the reality of the resurrection. But I come to our text verses this morning. And there's a verse that that strikes me, that I want you to notice. It's really not even a verse. It's a phrase, a word that is used. Look at our text again. The Bible says, so when this corruptible, he's talking about our our physical bodies, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Death stings sometimes, doesn't it? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think about that morning when Christ rose from the dead, and I think to myself that was a miracle that happened. That was an expression of divine authority over the domain of death. I think about that day, and that was a fulfillment of prophecy. All throughout the Old Testament, we have prophecies about the resurrection. And I think about David pinning down that God would not suffer His Holy One to see corruption, would not leave His soul in hell, and how that Christ got up in fulfillment of that prophecy. But I'm struck by this word in our text today, and I want to preach to you on this thought, the resurrection as a victory. I want to preach on the victory of the resurrection. 
Do you realize that on that day, as we said earlier in our message, there were a number of people that thought they had won only to find out that they had in fact lost. The devil thought he had won but he had lost. Death thought he had won, but in fact he had lost. Uh, the Jews thought they had won, but in fact they had lost. The Romans thought they had won, but in fact they had lost. On that day when Christ got up victorious, all the victory was His. Amen. And all that victory is yours and mine today through Him. What was the victory of the resurrection? And how is that victory given to us? That's what our text says. He giveth us the victory. How is it a victory? And how does He give that victory to you and to me? I want to give you four ways this morning that it was a victory and how that victory is given to us. You say, well, preacher, how was it a victory that day? Who was victorious and who was the victory gotten over? Let me say, number one, this morning on that day when Christ got up victorious, from the grave, the Lord overcame the devil. The Lord overcame, defeated, was victorious over Satan, his very self. When we look back through the testimony of Scripture, it's not hard to find Satan's designs for God's plan, the promised seed, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Since the promise was given in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter number 3 about a promised seed that would bruise the head of the serpent, Satan had been trying to thwart the coming of that seed. It's interesting when you look at the events in the Old Testament through this prism, and you'll find that, you know, men are corrupt, men sin. And they do things wrong. And, and all throughout the Old Testament, it's easy to interpret everything being done as merely the failings of man. And certainly they were. But if we look a little closer, we will see a tapestry of the machinations of Satan to try to thwart the plan of God. God says in the garden in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you a seed and that seed is going to bruise the head of the serpent. We go over to chapter 4 and the first story we read about is the murder of Abel. You say, preacher, why? Why did Cain kill Abel? Well, he hated his brother. He was jealous over his brother. But don't think for one moment that Satan didn't have a hand in provoking that anger. He was trying to destroy the seed. We go further in the early New or the Old Testament, Genesis chapter six, we find the corrupting of humanity. Satan said, if I can't do it with surgical precision, I'll carpet bomb the plan of God. And the Bible says he had corrupted humanity such a degree that the imagination of every man's heart was only evil continually. Uh, God answered this with a universal flood and the preservation of a man by the name of Noah. But no sooner did Noah climb off the ark than Satan met him there to tempt him to plant a vineyard, uh, to brew whiskey, to drink it, and to defile his family. Not long after that, we find all of humanity gathering together in defiance against God at the Tower of Babel. God goes down and thwarts the plans of Satan and scatters the nations. God begins to deal in the family of a man by the name of Abraham. In fact, He even reaffirms the promise of a coming seed that would deliver the world from their sins. And what does Satan do? He brings into the home a young lady by the name of Hagar out of the land of Egypt and uses the barrenness of Sarah to tempt Abraham to go in and commit adultery with Hagar. And Ishmael is born. And the intention of that is to confuse and to confound the line of promise. After Ishmael 
is born, Isaac is born, and he goes on to have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob will go on to have twelve sons, one of whom is named Joseph. And Joseph would be sold into slavery by his brethren. Uh, It's interesting to think about Satan's perspective on that. You say, preacher, why did Satan go after Joseph? Because he thought he was the promised son. He thought he was the promised seed. He's the favorite of his father. He's given the coat. He's the younger versus the elder, as the prophecy had been given concerning his father Jacob and Esau and Satan is trying to snuff out the promised seed. Joseph is sold into slavery, led to the land of Egypt, taken from Potiphar's house to the prison, from the prison to the palace and power and prominence and prosperity. And he brings his family down into the land of Egypt. They dwell there 450 years in which time Satan manages to enslave them under their Egyptian taskmasters. We find the enslavement of the Hebrews as God is trying to snuff out this promised line. We even see in the time of Moses that Satan intensified his persecution such that they commanded all the young male sons to be slain in the land of Egypt. What was that? That was Satan trying to destroy the line of the Messiah. We see the failure of Moses to follow the plan of God. We see the idolatry of the Hebrews in the wilderness. And it's interesting, you know, in Genesis 49, there's a prophecy that's given. And this is how it reads. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until shallow come, until peace come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And don't you know, after that prophecy was given, Satan, he left the other tribes alone and intensified his persecution of the tribe of Judah. We could look at the harassment of King David by Saul. We could look at the temptation of David to sin. We could talk about the ensnaring of Solomon by strange wives. We could look at the exile of the kingdom of Judah into the land of Babylon. We could talk about the diminishing of the Davidic line in the silent years between the New Testament and the Old Testament, such that whenever we come to the New Testament, the line of David has been diminished to just a carpenter and a young lady in the land of Nazareth. We could talk about the slaying of the Hebrew sons by Herod. That was a throwback. Amen. He was throwing all the way back to Egypt when he heard of the birth of the Messiah. We could talk about the vile rumors of our Lord's lineage and we could talk about the relentless persecution and conspiracies against the Lord throughout His earthly ministry. All of these have on them the fingerprint of Satan himself seeking to destroy and thwart the promised seed. Not only in history can we see it, but in Calvary we can see it. The Bible is abundantly clear about Satan's part in Calvary. It says in Luke 23, 3-4, Then Satan entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. John says, even on that night when Jesus had washed his feet, supper being ended, John 13, 2, The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Satan thought that Calvary was his great moment. He thought that it was his moment of ultimate victory, but it turned out to be his Waterloo. He thought it would be his moment of triumph. He thought he would finally snuff out and destroy this promised seed. But that's not what happened whenever Christ was hung on a cross, and it's not what happened when he got up the third day. In fact, that which Satan was the architect of, God was the sovereign over. That which Satan had schemed, God had co-opted and used it not to be man, Man's destruction, but to be man's redemption. 
we find not only Satan's designs, but I read a little further in my Bible and I read about Satan's defeat. Because the Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I like what the book of Colossians says. Paul writing says in you, I like it when the Bible says, and you. I'm kind of dumb, and sometimes God has to say, and you. (laughs) And you, (laughs) being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him. It means He made us alive. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers. You say, preacher, what are those principalities and powers? Well, Paul tells us about it in Ephesians chapter number 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual darkness and wickedness in high places. It's talking about all, it's talking about Satan and all of his minions and all of his arms and all of his forces. The Bible says Jesus having spoiled them. What does it mean to spoil? It don't mean like your grandmama does to you. It don't mean like your mama does to you. Spoiled them. What it means is He made them a spoil. He ruined them. He wrecked them. He spoiled principalities and powers. And I like this. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I like it, man. I I sometimes occasionally accidentally watch football. And uh, one of the things that bugs me, man, uh, I I mean, I guess I like it. Somebody goes in and, you know, they score a touchdown and, you know, they they got their whole their religious stuff that they do. But I'm going to be honest, I don't mind seeing somebody dance a little bit in the end zone. When did we get so sensitive that somebody can't celebrate? Amen? I mean, that kid just done something that I in a thousand years could not do. And man, if he wants to strut a little bit, let him strut a little bit. The Bible says this, that whenever, <laughs> whenever Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, that there in the halls of heaven, hey, there was weeping, but there was rejoicing too. And whenever he defeated Satan, he strutted a little bit. He made a show of them openly. He said, pour it on. Try to kill me and I'll just raise from the dead. Try to destroy me and I'll just raise up victorious. I'm glad. Hey, listen, on that day, the Lord defeated the devil. People say, well, preacher, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't make you do it and he didn't make old Flip do it either. Because the truth of the matter is, the devil cannot have authority in the life of the believer unless they yield it to him willingly. Uh, in your life, hey, that, he's a defeated foe, amen? Right. On that day, the Lord defeated the devil. But I would say, number two this morning, preacher, how was it a victory? Well, I would say on that day, light overcame darkness. Amen. The Bible uses the idea of light and darkness in Scripture over and over again in a spiritual sense. It's not necessarily talking about physical light. It's not necessarily talking about hues on the color spectrum. But it's talking about the idea of the influence of God and the things that please God and the truth and word of God against the machinations of and the things that please and serve the devil. And the Bible talks about the difference between light and darkness. When we come to the ministry of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, we find that it was not just the coming of the Lord, but it was the coming of light into the world. The Bible says this in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You want to know how important your Bible is? The Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. It says all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It says this in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Men had walked in darkness. They didn't know who God was, not who He really was. Uh, They didn't know how to please Him. They didn't know how to know Him. At least most men did not. Uh, There are a few exceptions all throughout the Old Testament record of men that by faith had came to know Him. But the vast majority of humanity dwelt in darkness. But when Christ came, robed in flesh, light was shined into the world. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 5, John seemed to know something about this. This then is the message which we have heard of Him declaring to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Jesus was not just light. He was the Lord. He was, he was not just the glory of God. He, he is God. And as such, He expressed the light of who God is. Christ Himself said in John eight twelve. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. One of my favorite passages we're teaching on Isaiah in Apollo's course right now. And chapter number 9 of Isaiah gives a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And we know it's about the Lord Jesus because we're told in Matthew 4 that He fulfilled this prophecy. It says in verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, that's Isaiah, saying the land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. He was and is the light of the world. And His coming brought light to the human condition. We see the coming of the light, but we find that mankind did not accept that light because there was confusion at it. John 1, 5 says this about that very same light. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. You know, by the way, that's still true today. When you turn on the light, the darkness flees. There's not a mixture of light and of darkness, but when you turn on the light, it shatters the darkness. The darkness flees. Dark and light, the light and darkness, they are incompatible one with another. One flees from the other. And we find that spiritually this was true when our Lord came into this world. He is the light of the world and He is the light of God. But men did not receive that light. They did not accept that light. They couldn't comprehend that light. We find the confusion at the light. And John chapter number 3 describes for us the condemnation of darkness. Christ made this statement. John three nineteen. He said, this is the condemnation. You want to know why men die in their sins? This is the condemnation. You want to know why this world is broken? This is the condemnation. You want to know why there's hurt and pain and sorrow and suffering? Listen, you can sit back uh, on, on, on your throne of philosophy and lay it at God's feet and tell God it's all His fault that, that schools get shot up and that babies get cancer and all these different things. And, but this is the condemnation. This world is not broken because of God. It's, it's broken in spite of God. It's not broken because God broke it. Hey, when God created it, He sat back and said it's good. It's when man got his hands on it that it became broken. And you say, preacher, well, why is this world condemned? Well, this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Light came into the world and darkness didn't receive light. Darkness rejected light. We see the condemnation of the darkness and then we see the culmination of the darkness. 
The, the darkest moment in all of human history. And you can go back and look at a number of atrocities that mankind has committed and, and promulgated and perpetrated, but the darkest moment without debate, without question, was when they nailed God to a cross. That was the lowest that man has ever been. That was the lewdest that man has ever been. That was the most wicked and cruel that man had ever been. That their Creator walked amongst them and instead of worshiping Him, they nailed Him to a cross. It should be no wonder. For even Christ Himself said this in Luke twenty-two fifty-three. He said, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against Me. He says, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. What is he saying there? He, of course, I think he's speaking of spiritual darkness, but he's also speaking of, of, of scriptural darkness. And what he's saying is this, we're here at this moment because you have rejected the truth of God. Calvary was the culmination of all the darkness of the human condition that was set diametrically opposed in hostility against the light of the world and the light of God. God answered that with his own darkness. For we see in the record of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, the covering of the light. It says in Luke chapter number 23, verse 33 says, When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Down in verse 44 it says, It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. You say, preacher, how dark is man's sins? Dark enough to blot out the sun. Dark enough to turn the stomach of God. In that moment, God pushed humanity out and pulled a dark veil around His dealings with His precious Son. For in that moment, the Savior was made sin for you and I. You say, preacher, my sins, they're not that bad. They're not that dark. They're not that wicked. They're not that evil. They nailed Him to the cross just like my sins did. We see the covering of the light. But I'm glad it doesn't end there. Because on that third and glorious morning, the light got up out of the darkness and walked out of the tomb. I see the conquering of the darkness in the biblical record. The Bible says this in 1 John 2, 8, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. It's a dark world. And it seems like it's getting darker all the time. The clouds are gathering. The storm clouds are, are rolling and the thunder is clapping and sounding. But I got news for you. This this battle between light and darkness, some of y'all think Trump's going to get back on and fix it. Some of y'all think DeSantis is going to get back in there. He's going he's to get in there. He's going to straighten it all out. Light will finally win. I got news for you. The Trump we're looking for ain't that Trump. <laughs> the Trump that's going to fix it all ain't going to be that Trump. You say, preacher, are you against him? I got nothing to do with him one way or the other. I'm a citizen of heaven. I ain't looking for him to fix my problems. 
I, I, I ain't mad at him. I ain't in love with him. Amen. He, he, uh, the, I'm just telling you, the Trump that's going to fix it all ain't going to be that Trump. It's going to be the last Trump. Amen. The Trump of God. Amen. The Lord Jesus coming back to reign. But I got news for you. This thing of light and darkness, it was settled a long time ago. Darkness crowded in. A darkness that could be felt. A darkness that blotted out the sun. And the light of Jesus Christ pierced it through victorious. I, I, I would say this, it, it, when he rose from the grave, light overcame darkness. But then there's a third thought that occurred to me. When he rose from the grave, love overcame deeds. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean by that, preacher? Love overcame deeds. Well, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, and it's always been that men were justified by faith. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Uh, if salvation were, a, were, were, were of, of works, then, then faith would not have come. Hey, listen, if it could be of works, then it would not be of grace. And if it would not be of gra- grace, then, then Christ need not have died for us. Amen? Uh, listen, if, if it could be done by the works of the law, He wouldn't have sent us Jesus. He would have sent us a better Jew. Right? To show us how to be a better Jew. Amen? But He sent us Jesus instead, the Savior, not unto the Jews only, but also to the Greeks and unto the uttermost parts of the world. And, and, and so, but all throughout the Old Testament, it was always that salvation was by faith and the promise of the Word of God and, and in the truth of it. But the system through which they approached unto God and the means through which they worshipped God were deeply associated with the idea of the works that men did. We see in the Bible the demands of the law. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter number 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. I'm glad I'm not under the curse. <laughs> it's funny. You meet these people. They say, well, I'm going to work my way there. Then you're cursed. You're cursed. You say, well, preacher, I've been baptized. Then, uh, and that's what I'm counting on to get me there. Well, then you're cursed. Because the baptism won't get you there. Well, preacher, I try to go to church, and I'm a church member, and I've never been saved, but I try to do my best and be a good person. Then you're cursed, because church membership will never get you there. Good works will never get you there. Your, your religious pedigree will never get you there. If you're doing it by works, then you are cursed, because no works can get you there. Hey, listen, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. 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 The Bible says it four times, so I figured I'd say it four times. Amen. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. The demands of the law were this, do, 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 do. Duty and deed were the marks and demands and criteria of the law. But that presented a problem, which is this, just as our text that we just read a moment ago says, uh, you cannot continue in those things. You cannot live in perfection. And so a sacrifice had to be given. But even that was insufficient because in Hebrews 10 we read of the deficiency of the law. It says in verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every single year. 
I got news for you. Listen, even if they, if they build the temple, if they breed the red heifer, if they cleanse the instruments, if they reappoint the priesthood, if they set everything in perfect biblical scriptural order, God will look at it and He'll say, no, thank you. I'm not interested in it anymore. There's a better sacrifice. There's a better lamb. There's a better, uh, there's a better gift. There's a better covenant uh, that's being given to us. I got news for you. The law never could do what Jesus has done. There's a problem. There was deficiency in the law. But I'm thankful when the Lord showed up, there was deliverance from the law. And I'm thankful to be delivered from the law. I'm thankful to be delivered from the law. I ate some hog jowl this week. I'm thankful to be delivered from the law. But even more so than that, I'm thankful to be delivered from the law because I can go in under the presence of God at any time. I can draw nigh and draw close unto Him. I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to expect someone to go once a year on on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, to try to get me some kind of connection to God. I've got God in my life every single day. You say, preacher, don't you need a priest? Well, I've got a high priest over the house of God. And you say, well, preacher, you got a high priest, but what about the other priest? Well, you're made unto Him royal priesthood. I'm thankful. You say, preacher, God done away with the priesthood. Well, He did do away with it, but really what He did is He inducted all of us into it. Calvary. I like, man, I see the deliverance from the law. But how did it happen? How did he do that? Well, Romans 5, 8 tells us this. God commendeth his love toward us. It wasn't the law that did it. It was love that did it. God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, preacher, what about those sacrifices? Well, Ephesians 5, 2 says this. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. There's a reason the Hebrews writer said there remaineth therefore no sacrifice for sin. It, it ain't needed anymore. It ain't needed anymore. It can't do it anymore. It can't get the job done anymore. The window is closed. There's already been a perfect sacrifice given. I like how Paul says in Galatians 3.13, he said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Where does that leave us, preacher? Well, it leaves us where Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for the law... You say, preacher, but the law. Well, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. You say, but preacher, but the law was good. Yeah, the law was good in as much as it showed us that we were sinners. It was us that was unrighteous and ungodly. You say, preacher, we ought to go back to it. No, we ought to go forward from it. You say, but preacher, the law, the law. Yeah, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Why is that? For what the law could not do. That's really what it boils down to. There's some things the law could not do. The Lord can do anything. But there were some things the law could not do. Why? In that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Man, I'm thankful. I see the deliverance from the law. That happened when he got up from the tomb. That happened when he got up from the grave. That happened. I mean, you understand, Judaism today is a cult. Ever since Christ said it is finished, it became a cult. It became a cultural institution, but not a means and path to get to God, not a way to know Him, uh, because when He said it is finished, it was finished on the cross of Calvary. And that's where we see the displacing of the law. 
I like what Hebrews chapter 10 says. We read a little bit of it a little earlier about the law not being able and the sacrifices not being able to make a person perfect. So you say, well, preacher, what do we do now? Uh, what about the covenant? Well, this is the covenant. Hebrews 10:16 says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, bold to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, not by a revised way, not by a reformed way, not by a religious way, but by a new and a living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil. You say, well, there it is, preacher, the veil. No, the veil, that is to say, His flesh and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, I'm glad when he got up from from the grave. Listen, death was the domain of the law. And when he defeated death, he, he, he displaced the law. He fulfilled it and he set up something better. I think it is better. My Bible says it is better. I'll just agree with my Bible. My Bible says a new and living way and I'm just going to agree with it. I think it's a better way. On that day, love overcame deeds. Love did what deeds could never do. But then a final thought this morning. I think you probably knew we were headed this way. If you do, you'll get a gold star at the end of the service or a cookie or something. Amen. On that day, life, life overcame death. I'm so thankful. I hate death. I have more to do with it than any 35-year-old man ought to. I, I preach funerals. I, I pray with people that are dying. I, I'm in the room with them from time to time when they when they meet the Lord. I just I hate death. I hate what it does to people and, and and families and and I just I hate it. And I just I don't know about you, man, but it gets me excited to know that death does not win. And when I think about that third day, when I think about him getting up from that grave. I, I tell you, I don't know what it looks like to you, but I sort of think about it like in the Old Testament whenever uh, Delilah uh, went and got the cords and, and bound Samson and thinking that was going to do something. And, and death had come along and had, had, had bound him in, in new courts thinking that was going to do something. And I just, I, I love the imagery. The Bible talks about Samson getting up and shaking him off. And I just, I think about Jesus getting up from the grave and just shaking off death. He gets... Man, it, it gets me excited. I mean, it does. I, it gets me almost as excited as that gets. Amen? My soul. I read in this passage and I, I think about the vanquishing of death. Death's awful. All throughout the Old Testament we read of death's dominion. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Down in verse 14, it says this, death reigned. And certainly up until Calvary, that's what death did. It reigned like a king upon a throne. I understand death is an event that transpires. It's a condition that overtakes a person. It's not an individual. It's not a person with a personality. But certainly death reigned over humanity. Hebrews 9.27 says, Even to this day it's appointed unto men once to die. This caused the psalmist to ask this question in Psalms 89. What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? I got news for you. If you live long enough, you're going to die. 
if the Lord don't come back first, you're going to die. I, it's part of the reason I give up. I, listen, I used to be 175 pounds and cut, looked like some kind of UFC fighter. Do you know that about me? And I give up on healthy living because I've never seen anybody die of good health. You're going to die of something. Sooner or later, healthy as you may be, listen, drink all the carrot juice you want and eat all the soybeans you want, but sooner or later you're going to die. You'll just die unhappy. My soul, wouldn't it be awful all the blessings God's give us for us to die with soybeans on our breath? My soul. Sooner or later, death comes to claim any and everyone. So much so that we read even in our Bible of the death of God Himself. Say, so, preacher, how, how, how far did death's reach go? Well, far enough that Acts 13 verse 14, uh, Peter preaching to those Jews gathered that had had a part in his crucifixion. This is what he said. You denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Talking about Barabbas. And he says this, you killed the Prince of Life. I, th- I thought about how it must have looked in that moment in the balconies of heaven, in the halls of hell, how it must have looked whenever the Prince of Life bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What it must have looked like when Him that was the life of men, Him that is God, Him in whom we live and move and have our being, bowed His head and gave up the ghost. I see death's domain in my Bible. But I'm glad it doesn't end there. Because in that very same story, not in a different story, not in another part of your Bible, in that very same story, in that very same fact, we see in the crucifixion of our Lord, not just death's dominion, but we see death's defeat. I like how the Bible says it in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus was not bamboozled into the grave. He was not hoodwinked up onto the cross. He set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Before any ever man knew about the cross, God knew about the cross. Before ever there was any sin, there was already a Savior. Before ever there was any need, there was already a Lamb that had been slain from the foundations of the earth. He was not fooled into Calvary. He was not coerced into Calvary. All the armies of men could not have put Him on that cross if He had not wanted to go. All the armies of heaven were there marshaled just waiting for a moment to destroy all of the forces of the Roman might and strength of the world. But He said, uh, set His face like a flint towards Calvary. And as a sheep is dumb before shears and is led to the slaughter, so He opened not His mouth. He willingly went. He laid His life down at the cross of Calvary. He tasted death. For you, When you taste something, I don't know about you, there's been some things in my life I've tasted I wished I didn't taste. But most of the time when I taste something, it's because I'm partaking in it. The Bible says He tasted death for every man. Not only did He taste death, but He triumphed over death. (laughs) It's hard. You're going to preach a message and you can only fit 75,000 verses in it and there's just there's more you want to say. And I thought about all the passages that describe 
how that he overcame death. A good one is the one we read a moment ago. I'm glad. I stopped right in the middle of it, of verse 15 of Acts chapter 3, when it says he, that they killed the prince alive. It goes on to say, whom God raised from the dead. There's so many places we could go to describe how he triumphed. But I think my favorite one is in Acts chapter number 2, verse number 22. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that He should be holding of it. I like it, man. I love it. I love my Bible. I like it. I love my Savior. I like it. Death grabbed hold of Him and He didn't know who He grabbed hold of. He'd been used to just grabbing people and just, you know, commanding them around. And just, he didn't matter. Squalling mamas and weeping children. It didn't faze him. It didn't bother death. He wasn't bothered by the destruction. He wasn't bothered by the heartache and the pain and the hopelessness. He'd just grab somebody by the scruff of the neck and toss him down into darkness. And it didn't bother him one bit. And then one day, there in the land, oh my, that one day, there at the city of Jerusalem, they took this man, this male factor, just a thief, just a criminal, just a rabble rouser like everybody else and they hauled him off that cross and put him into the hands of death and death grabbed hold of him and he thought he had a pretty good hold on him. In fact for two days he held him pretty good but on that third day all of a sudden a hand began to move. On that third day the eyes began to blink. On that third day his feet began to move and Jesus got up and like Samson of old just shook him off. Death said oh my I can't hold on to him. Death didn't know what he had got hold of. It was not possible for him to be holding of it. The old preacher William Muncie described it this way. He said this, but Jesus met death in death's own territory and permitted himself to be captured that he might lead captivity captive. He went with the pale monarch to the silent darkness of the tomb, but it was to undermine its strongholds and kindle the star of resurrection in its murky vaults, uh, to cement the past to the future and pledge omnipotence for a reunion. He plucked the sting from death, took his keys, broke his crown, chained the monster to his chariot wheels and mounted aloft to heaven a conqueror. My hearers, the keys of the grave are in higher hands now. He triumphed over death. That's part of that's reason. Oh my soul! It's, it's why I look. I ain't, I ain't looking to go on the next bus any more than you are. But it's why it bothers me when people tremble at death uh, because he already triumphed over death. We don't have to tremble at death. We, we've been loosed from that fear, from that bondage. We don't have to do that anymore because he triumphed over death. He didn't just triumph over death. He tamed death. He broke it like a wild horse and put a saddle on it. And now it is the emissary and servant of the purposes of God. I like how 1 Corinthians, how our text says it. 15, verse 54. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Where did it go? (laughs) The sting of death is sin. Well, Jesus took care of sin on Calvary. The strength of sin is the law. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law on Calvary. 
Where did it go, death? Where would your sting go? Uh, where, where, where did your victory go, grave? Uh, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, insomuch that the psalmist could say, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. The Apostle Paul, when meeting death, uh, he did not meet it with fear. He did not meet it with trembling. He said, Behold, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've, I, I've kept my, the faith, and I've kept my course. He said, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Uh, Paul, whenever he was getting ready uh, to face the prospect of death, he said, hey, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I'm glad for the believer we don't have to live in fear of death. Now, listen, if you're here lost, you better fear death. If you're here and you're unsaved, you better fear death. You're a heartbeat away from hell, but if you'll come to the cross of Calvary and believe on Jesus Christ, you don't have to live in fear of death. Death can no longer be fearful, but merely a it can no longer be the end, but merely a doorway. No longer the period of the sentence, but merely a comma to greater things. Man, I'm, I'm glad he tamed death. We ain't got to be scared of death anymore. <laughs> we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. He robbed it of its venom. He robbed it of its poison. He robbed it of its power. He took its sting. He took its victory. And now death for the believer is not something that we fear, but it's something that we can meet in faith and faithfulness, rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I see not only the vanquishing of death, but I see the victory of life. I'm glad that death didn't just lose I'm glad Jesus won. We live in this day today. There was a time in society where when two people had a competition, somebody won and somebody lost. We don't even have that anymore. Now everybody gets trophies. Nobody loses. Can I tell you something that you need to hear, especially young people? If you lose, you lost. Get better and do better the next time. If you lost, you're not a winner. You are a loser. Get better and do better the next time. All right? You don't have to be a loser forever. You can get better. The people that won weren't that good always. They spent time learning how to get better and then won, all right? We need to quit giving people trophies for being losers. It's corrupting our society. I, but listen, I'm glad, I'm glad death didn't just lose. I'm glad Jesus won. I read about it in 2 Timothy 1.10. You've been so patient. I'm reading two passages and I'm done. I like it. It says in 2 Timothy 1.10, but now, but is now made manifest, talking about, talking about the saving grace of God, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Here's what he's done. Who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Preacher, how does he give that victory to me? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through you believing on Him and being saved. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the natural condition of every person born into this world. But God's done something about that. Verse 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises you from the deadness of your sins. We share in that resurrection victory. Preacher, how? Through the gospel. Through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved and being born again. Not through being religious, but through being made righteous through the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Man, I'm glad to report to you today there is victory in Him. 
There is victory in Him. And if you don't know Him, you don't know that victory, but you can know it. You can know it this morning. If you'll come to Him, guess what? He'll share that victory with you. Uh, If you refuse Him, if you walk off in the deadness of your sins, then you walk off in defeat. But you don't have to do that this morning. I'm glad to report to you the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. The, the, The high priest is serving and functioning. I'm glad to report, hey, listen, He's victorious today. Let's bow our heads together as a musician comes to play. Thank you so much for your patience on this Easter Resurrection Sunday. I know so many of you have plans and you've got, but this is the most important moment of the day. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation. I don't know what you mean to do through it, but I trust you with it and I know it'll be perfect. Lord, help us to yield unto you and may you have your will and way in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name.